Mahler wrote elaborate programs for this symphony long after he had finished it. These programs are posted on our website. But the consistency of their scenarios and of the general tenor of their philosophical viewpoint indicates that they do not represent a revisionist afterthought unrelated to what the composer had in mind when he wrote the work. Mahler's profoundly spiritual nature pervades all of these programs and was certainly the inspiration for this massive choral symphony. Yet Mahler never truly embraced any organized religion as such. His conversion from Judaism to Catholicism was basically a practical move necessary to further his career. Although his spiritualism was probably sourced in Judeo-Christian morality, his true religion, as he himself said, was music. As Lagrange points out, Mahler's vision of Judgment Day, as expressed in these programs, differs greatly from the Christian viewpoint in its Nietzschean renunciation of moralistic dualism and eternal condemnation. Instead, Mahler offers one of the most poignant and moving statements of benevolent humanism ever set to music. Before putting the finishing touches on his first symphony, Mahler had already realized that the victory he sought to achieve in the finale, the triumph of life over death, did not completely satisfy him. Had he found meaning in the suffering of humanity, or is the outcome of life's struggles without purpose or meaning? Derek Cook identifies the nature of Mahler's dilemma. He said, In the first symphony, the universal implications of the funeral march are evidently swept aside and ignored in the finale through an affirmation of youthful vitality and confidence. But in the second symphony, these implications are caught up from a higher standpoint, that is, confronted on the metaphysical plane and resolved by an act of religious faith. Mahler suggested many times that the Second Symphony was the spiritual successor to the First. Reference in his program notes for the Second Symphony to the hero of the First reveals not only a symbolic and conceptual nexus between these two symphonies, but a personal one. Envisioning himself as the hero of his own life, Mahler struggled throughout his life with the same basic metaphysical issues he presents in the Second Symphony. It is doubtful whether he ever achieved a fully satisfying resolution. In each symphonic statement, Mahler engages the problem from a different perspective, and the development of his overall dramatic symphonic conception parallels the evolution of his treatment of fundamental philosophical and spiritual issues. Theodor Reich finds in Mahler's psyche an obsession with death and the meaninglessness of earthly life that seemed to him a natural, if nihilistic, response not only to the injustice of human suffering, but also to his own travails that plagued him throughout his life. Yet in Mahler's music, he rarely succumbs to an inescapably tragic viewpoint. Instead, as a true romantic, he seeks to overcome both the anger of his accusations against an apparently pitiless deity and the torments of his personal struggles by seeing himself as the hero who conquers both life and death. It is the stuff of which both heroic legend and religious spiritualism are made. Few composers have revealed their own spiritual yearnings in their art with such depth and dramatic power. Mahler's intensely subjective manner of expression, which seems to evoke a sense of being alone in the world and yet responsible for trying to overcome the suffering that must be born in it, has an existential ring. One senses in the Second Symphony 
as in so much of Mahler's music, an underlying sense of confrontation with the fundamental uncertainties of life and its tragic essence. It is as if he saw man standing alone, face to face with God, and in defiance of his deity, accusing him of injustice. Why should man endure such suffering without any real assurance of redemption? On a strictly musical level, one can recognize in the Second Symphony the influence of so many of Mahler's predecessors. Berlioz, in the many abrupt, frenetic passages, in the use of an offstage band, and in the appearance of the Dies Irae plain chant that Berlioz used in Symphony Fantastique. Liszt, in the application of his principle of thematic transformation. Bruckner, in the frequent use of brass chorales, string tremolos, and sustained pedal point. Beethoven, of course, whose Ninth Symphony provided Mahler with the second's fundamental symphonic structure. In 1887, one of Mahler's close friends, Siegfried Lepiner, had published in Leipzig his German translation of the poetical works of Adam Miskiewicz, a noted Polish poet. Lepiner gave a copy of the volume to Mahler. It included an epic poem, originally entitled The Forebears, that completely captivated the young composer. Lepiner had changed the title to Totenfire, or Funeral Rites, giving it an aura of ritualism. He justified this renaming by suggesting that funeral rites, akin to religious wakes, are still held by people in many provinces in Lithuania, East Prussia, and Kulandia. Such pre-Christian ceremonies sprang, he said, from man's current belief that banquets offered in honor of the dead can soothe them and better their condition. The romantic and heroic character of the poem attracted Mahler more than its historical or religious content. Its tragic tale of lost love was evidently biographical. The author's hopeless passion for a young girl, whom, although in love with him, married someone else. The shock was so great that it drove the poet to the brink of madness. Like his hero, whose name incidentally was Gustav, he became obsessed with the idea of suicide. Mahler may have related the subject matter of the poem to his own love affair with Marion Matilda von Weber that reached its tragic conclusion at about the time Mahler became acquainted with the poem. Whether it was the subject or simply the poem's title that intrigued him, Mahler soon set to work to create a symphonic movement, listing in character and dimension. In this extensive movement, he would express both his personal heartbreak and, as he said, a sense of outrage at the apparent omnipotence of death and the lack of ultimate significance in human life in the face of it. The movement that emerged bears the title that Liebner gave to the poem Totenfire, as in both the first symphony and the poem that inspired Totenfire, the hero is the author himself, who projects his own life and personality onto the work. But Mahler intended to present a universal spiritual message, his personal tragedy serving to fuel both his vilification of human suffering and his search for a sustainable purpose and meaning in life. The symphonic poem that Mahler would call Totenfire had apparently been conceived from the outset as the first movement of a projected symphony. In the spring of 1893, Mahler completed the Andante and Scherzo movements, intending them to follow Totenfire in what would ultimately become his second symphony. 
Mahler's aborted affair with Frau von Weber was probably the direct inspiration for the Andante movement. Thus his reference to an hour of happiness long past in an early program. For the scherzo, Mahler looked to his recently completed Wunderhorn leader. His choice of the Thischpredicht song was an inspiration. It contains two significant Mahlerian elements otherwise absent in the symphony, expressions of parody and a moto perpetuo rhythm that symbolizes the meaningless whirl of everyday life. Both the andante and scherzo movements serve in different ways as what Mahler called intermezzi, in that they divert attention from the stark atmosphere and intense rage of the opening movement by bringing to the fore more mundane aspects of human life that need to be explored in order to come to grips with life's essence. The andante provides a needed romantic contrast to the terrors evoked in the first movement, while the biting irony of the scherzo represents a parody of passages from the outer movements. Written before both the andante and scherzo movements, the fourth movement, Urlicht, was not conceived as part of the symphony until after Mahler had decided on setting the Klopstock hymn in the finale. In 1893, Mahler orchestrated the song for inclusion in the symphony, recognizing the need to provide a buffer between the scherzo movement and the expansive choral finale, he chose one of his earlier religious songs to serve as a brief repose before the monumental closing movement. Yet he had no idea how to conclude this already enormous symphony. Then he attended the funeral of the famous Wagnerian conductor Hans von Bülow, with whom Mahler had served as fellow conductor in Hamburg. Mahler had presented his Totenfeier to von Bülow for critical comment in 1891, only to have it summarily rejected. During the funeral ceremony, Mahler heard a recitation of Friedrich Klopstock's well-known choral hymn, Resurrection. After the ceremonies ended, he immediately rushed back to his apartment and set to work. Soon after, his comrade and fellow composer, Josef Bauschlav Förster, visited him. He found Mahler in a state of great agitation. Förster asked Mahler if he had been to the funeral, and when Mahler replied in the affirmative, Förster knew in an instant that Mahler had at last found his inspiration for the finale. Over the years, the title Resurrection has been given to the Second Symphony, although there is no evidence that Mahler ever intended the symphony to have this or any other subtitle. Similarly, Mahler did not authorize the use of the subtitle Titan for the First Symphony after he eliminated it from the original five-movement symphonic poem when he had converted the work to a symphony. Mahler felt that subtitles would create more a misunderstanding than edification, about the underlying meaning of these symphonies. 